It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in. You know, we just wrapped up our study of the book of Revelation. Hard to believe. It's been a couple years that we have been in that. I know when I say that, it just sounds overwhelming, but that's how long it took us to get through all 22 chapters. And it was a fantastic journey. And on Saturdays, we have been covering what is called our roundtable format here at Engage in Truth, where we interview guests, talk about issues both locally and all around the country. And a topic has come up that I think is quite fitting that in our services on Sunday mornings at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, we are going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to just turn your attention here to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 today, because we're going to be talking about some of the subjects that many of us, well, maybe it's a a little bit tough for us to process, and how we submit to governing authorities, how we're to respect human authority. This is a difficult one for some, because many may struggle with various decisions that are being made in politics, in our governing officials, as our representatives make decisions for our state, for our nation, uh, we may struggle with the decisions they're making, and we should if they're in disagreement to God's Word. And so we want to cover that here today on Engage in Truth before we get into our nether, uh, next study of one of the scriptures. We're going we're gonna to go either through 1 Corinthians or cover Ecclesiastes. So we're still evaluating that, but most likely we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes here very soon. But let me just jump us to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 to 9 today. And here it's very interesting because Solomon writes these words as the king of Israel. He is the king writing about how to get along with the king. And so that makes this content more credible for the casual reader. And and I know that God chose the right messenger for the job. So here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1, just the first part of of, of verse 1 here. Let's read. Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Now, this is a rhetorical question that anticipates the answer that no man knows, which which we'll read later in in verse 7. In fact, it's the admission at the end of this passage that concludes that the wise who think they know, they are not able to discover anything. Now, why is that important to understand? Because this entire context is pointing to the fact that God Almighty reigns. He is sovereign over all. And especially if we try to use human understanding and wisdom, and I say that in quotes, that we will not know, and though we may think we know, we don't know, and only God himself does. So here we are in verse 1b. We read, A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. That seems like an interesting thing to say, but this sentence should be understood in the context of the king's court. Since ancient kings were leery of coups, a, a court official standing in the king's presence wouldn't dare display sorrow, lest the king interpret that sorrow as some sort of dissatisfaction with the king himself. So court officials always wanted to appear happy and fulfilled in their positions. So Solomon is saying that the wise person is illumined and has so much joy that you can see it on their face. And, and he isn't telling us to fake it. He's telling us that if we're wise, that we should be joyful no matter what the circumstances are. Why? Because a truly wise person spends time with the Lord and understands that God 
is in control. Therefore, the joy is authentic despite all of the circumstances. That's why it's important to read this, especially in times like these when we may disagree so often with the decisions that those in authority are making. So what do others see when they look at us? Do they see this joy? Do we have the joy that's given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23? And if not, maybe it's because we're not soaking in the wisdom of God's word, as we're told to do in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, that we're to dwell on these things. If it's pure, noble, praiseworthy, we're to take it all in, and that truly is found in God's word. It's not being integrated into our life if we're not exhibiting that joy. So if we're really in the word, it's going to show in us. It's going to show through our face, through our words, through our actions. And we're going to find peace in the midst of the storms because the closer we draw to God, the more we realize just how much he is in full control. So wisdom brings joy because a person who has biblical wisdom is assured of what is right. Now, in verses 2 to 4, Solomon is now going to explain our responsibility to government. Now, this may remove that smile from your face. However, God wants us to exercise wisdom and behave appropriately in the presence of our leaders. And this seems quite fitting in this section of Ecclesiastes because the context is of trusting God. Because nothing may challenge your trust in God more than when the government around you seems to be falling into chaos. It can feel hopeless. So here, verse 2, we read, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Now, Solomon begins this section with this imperative, keep the king's commandment. Now, notice that this obedience isn't for the sake of the king. It's for the sake of the one who placed the king on his throne because of your oath before God. You see, it was a practice in the ancient world that when a king came to the throne, the people of his kingdom were required to swear an oath of obedience to that king. Now, today we don't enter into those kind of oaths, but we do make commitments to authorities. We do pledge allegiance to the country of our citizenship. And and when we work even for an employer, We're bound to follow directives until such a time that we leave his or her employment. And we all make commitments, oaths to various authorities. Now, unfortunately, we have a tendency to make commitments or oaths prematurely. And then we find ourselves unable to fulfill them. So God sees this as breaking our oath to him and not to those who are in authority above us. So if we break an oath to a king, how is that a violation against God? Well, number one, firstly, God is the one who establishes kings and kingdoms. Let me repeat that. God is the one who establishes kings and kingdoms. So so wicked rulers are even used by God to punish disobedient people. Just go to Jeremiah 43.10 on that, where he raises up Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon even to bring judgment against Egypt. So many nations have a tendency of selecting a king without seeking God to appoint them a ruler. We go to Hosea 8.4 on that. So God is the ruler over all things. That sometimes is the, the, the simple statement that's not so simple. We fail to live like that, that God is the ruler over all things. Go to 1 Chronicles 29.11-12 and Proverbs 16.4 on that. Let me just read a few that might squelch any... Uh, confusion on that subject. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 reads, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him 
all things consist. In Proverbs 8, 15 to 16, we read, by me, by me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princesses rule and nobles and all the judges of the earth. Go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. We read simply, he removes kings and raises up kings. Daniel 4, 17 tells us that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills and sets over it the lowliest of men. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, according to Psalm 75, 7. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes, according to Proverbs 21, 1. So secondly, we're to honor our vows. God is the one who established the kings and kingdoms, and we're to do our part, to honor our vows. We go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 5 to 15 on that. You can even look to Deuteronomy 23, Judges 11, and Acts 5 to see how the Lord takes making a vow very seriously. Now, God commands us to submit to governing authorities. This is one that's a little harder for us to swallow at times. Let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And Romans 13, 1-7 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers according to continually to this very thing. Render therefore all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. So all of this naturally begs the question, is civil disobedience permissible, especially for Christians? In Acts chapter 5, verse, verses 29, we'll just start there, Acts 5, 29, we're reminded that God's commands supersede those of man. That's number one here. God's commands supersede those of man. Even though there are more than 300,000 laws in the United States, the commands of God will always prevail as the reigning authority. God established law. And Sir Henry Bracton, who's dubbed the father of modern law from 1210 to 1268 A.D., he would concur. He said that law was based in God's law. So because of sin, there are subordinate laws even in Scripture. How do we know that? Well, you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we see that marriage is established, and then it's reiterated again in Malachi 2, 14 to 16. But then suddenly divorce is introduced in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. So Jesus explains the law of marriage and that divorce was then permitted by Moses because of sin— in Matthew 19, 3-9, and then Paul reiterates and expounds on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So the original law was amended due to sin. 
The laws of men, therefore, subordinate to the laws of God. But if the laws of men can be in opposition to God's law, then we have an issue. In fact, the enemy will attempt to make changes to the times and the laws, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And God will allow him, this is the enemy, to bring hardships on the peoples of the earth, even the saints. So let's look at some civil disobedience in the Bible. When man's laws were negating and going against God's laws. There were issues then that occurred and a decision had to be made. Let's look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, we read that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So they were instructed to worship a golden image, which directly goes against a a biblical command to have no other gods before me. But the king had established this, and they had a decision to make. In Daniel chapter 6, we see the same thing. Daniel defies King Darius's decree to not pray to anyone other than the king. In both cases, God rescued his people from the death penalty, and that was, a, that was imposed upon them, and this signaled, as we can best interpret, his approval of their actions. In fact, we see civil disobedience in Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, in which Christians will refuse to worship the beast and his system and refuse even to take the mark of the beast, which will lead to their execution. So there specifically, civil disobedience leads to their death, but it pleases God in so doing. Acts records civil disobedience of Peter and John who were told to stop preaching. They're arrested then for preaching, and Peter and John tell them in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, he says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They had to speak of God. They had to talk of the wondrous things that they heard and were told to teach from Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Obadiah defied Jezebel by hiding God's prophets rather than turning them over to be killed. In fact, he hid some 100 prophets. Why? Because it says that he feared the Lord greatly. He feared God more than man. When King Saul was ordered to kill Jonathan, he ordered that Jonathan be put to death, but the people resisted and saved Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, 45. We see in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is, is disobeying the king of Jericho and it hides the Israelite spies, and she's commended for it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, the hall of faith. In Exodus chapter 1, the Egyptian pharaoh gave a clear command that two of the Hebrew midwives were to kill all male babies, all the male Jewish babies. Well, the Bible says that the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh and feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them to do, but saved the male children alive in Exodus 1.17. So here they were concerned about babies being born and doing this to the fear of the Lord to save children. Boy, does that sound like something familiar in our day and age. In Exodus 1.20-21, God responds, God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So there are a number of scriptural examples of people who were confronted with choices to make. A, follow the wicked commands because they come from figures of authority, or B, follow God's directives. Now here's the catch. 
in order to know which is which, you must know the laws of God. If if the laws of men do not counter the directives of God, then they must be followed. In fact, Christ spoke to this in Matthew 22, 21, where he says, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So then the takeaway here is that Christians should resist a government that commands or compels evil and should work nonviolently within the laws of the land to change a government that permits evil. Civil disobedience then is permitted when the government's laws or commands are in direct violation of God's laws and commands. And if a Christian disobeys an evil government, unless he or she can flee from that government, they should accept the fact that they may be subjected to that government's punishment for their actions, despite the fact that God is pleased. And we read that in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 17 to 22. And Christians are certainly permitted to work to install new government leaders and in, in, in various uh, positions of authority when the laws have been established to do so. So we have the ability to vote. We have the v- ability to make our voices be known. And Psalm 109.8 speaks to that. So because of spiritual warfare in positions of leadership, Christians are commanded to pray for their leaders and for God to intervene in his time to change an ungodly path that they are pursuing. We read in 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So this is important that we can... We can complain all day long, but if we're not praying for these individuals of authority, that's our greatest asset as Christians, to be able to approach the throne of grace with confidence and be able to petition God the Father with a sweet aroma to his nostrils, with the wisdom that he provides to use discernment and understanding, to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even through these individuals who are leading our nation. Now, when we go back to Solomon's point of keeping our oath, how we obligate ourselves to work, marriage, and church is a, church is a great indication of our character. If we're hasty to get married and find ourselves you know, unable to fulfill those vows that, you know, now we're swift to just throw in the towel on somebody, what we have to find here is that when we make vows— We need to take that seriously because then we're breaking a vow, an oath to God. Now, if an oath has already been broken, we have to repent and be faithful to move forward with where we're at. So so if we make promises to an employer in order to get a job, now you find that, well, maybe I don't want to do that. you got to remember the one that you're offending is God. He instructs us to be faithful to our employers, our masters, as faithful laborers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. So, so this means we should be cautious about how we obligate ourselves and ensure that we keep our obligations, even small ones, and that we be a people that follow through. And that we ought to remember then that any authority that, that is over us, that we find ourselves under, that God has ordained authority, and therefore it should be obeyed. Again, if it does not defy God's directives, it must be obeyed. The only exception then is when these things come about, when we see direct opposition to God's word, when we are legalizing immorality, then we must be a people of uh, of prayer, a people of 
action. We've got to make our voices heard on these. We've got to use the law to its fullest to make a change and be change agents in the culture, not just sit idly on the sideline. It's not always easy to obey the king, and there are times when the kings don't do what we want them to do. They may not do the thing that we want them to do, and yet it may not be in direct opposition to God's word either. So, so we have to be cognizant of that. And Ecclesiastes 8, 3 to 4 says, Do not be hasty to go from his presence, i.e. the king, and do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever he pleases. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Now, this is really a context of individuals being becoming disillusioned by suggesting that, well, if the king isn't going to do what I want, because, you know, he, we, we want him to do many things. And, and you have over 300 million citizens in these United States who want the king to do a lot of things for them. Uh, and he obviously is going to have to say no. And so we may find ourselves then aligning with a, uh, an initiative to overthrow the king's actions. And we have to be very careful of that because this grass is greener on the other side syndrome that we find ourselves to in, in, into is very deceptive. Uh, it, it doesn't always resolve it. And that's why he says here, do not take your stand for an evil thing. We have to remember that God is the one who appointed the rulers and authorities, even the ones we don't like for a reason. And so therefore we have to be use wisdom and discernment when navigating these things. So we must understand that there are many layers, unseen realities at work with regard to rulers and their directives. So we always have to use wisdom in going before God on behalf of these things. In verses 5 to 7 of Ecclesiastes 8, we read, He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? Now, let me just take that apart briefly in the time that we have together. When you obey the king's commands, you most likely won't get into trouble, unless you're going to speak in opposition to the king because that king is doing something in opposition to God's will. But for example, when you drive the speed limit, you don't have to worry about speed traps. That when you pay your taxes, you shouldn't be as worried about an IRS audit. When you do your work faithfully on the job, it shouldn't concern you that maybe the boss is looking over your shoulder. So again, if we're speaking out in opposition to the things in this world that are in direct defilement to God, then we have to understand that we may that may come with persecution. Certainly, uh, many of the disciples understand understood that quite well. Uh, so we, we need to understand here that there is a right time for every action. And and let me just conclude with taking us back to what happened with Nehemiah. As Nehemiah was burdened over the distress that he heard of in Jerusalem, that the city lie in ruins, his first action wasn't to go run to the king and, and, and sign a petition, but rather his first order was to go to God in prayer and fasting. And so nearly the entire first chapter of Nehemiah is the recorded prayer of Nehemiah before God. Any idea how long it took before Nehemiah had a voice before the king? It's five months later, according to chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Five months later, we read the opportunity was presented before the king, and God guided Nehemiah, and he had already stirred the heart of the king to receive the message. How do we know that? Because Nehemiah credits God for every outcome that follows. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the king granted them my requests to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. 
And, and so what we have to understand is that we have no control, as, as Ecclesiastes 8, 8 to 9 will go on to say, that we have no control over the weather. We have no control over the day we die. We have no control virtually over anything except for how we respond to the sovereignty of God. And when we submit to the fact that God is fully on his throne, still reigns on high in these circumstances that we face today, where it seems there is uncertainty every day, there frustration looms for virtually every voter, everybody's got an opinion, what we have to do is understand that God is in control, and he is the one who raises up kings and takes them down. So as his agents in this world. We are to use the means at our disposal to be intentional. He he didn't give the dissemination of the gospel message to the angels to do. He gave that to us. So there was an expectation for action. Yes, prayer followed by action. And we must do the same in this culture around us as well, as there are attempts to continue to expand abortion, to expand pornography, to expand homosexual agendas, LGBTQ agendas, all of these things that are going to stand in opposition to God's word. We must be faithful to pray, faithful to fast, and faithful to make our voices known, to to talk to our senators, our representatives, our governors, and do so with respect. And if you're looking for ways to do that, you can go to our website at calvaryfountain.com calvaryfountain.com. If you go to our website there, you'll see a couple buttons. One says uh, video and audio. You click that and then you drop down, you'll see radio and podcast. And below this particular broadcast that you'll hear there again, you'll find a list of all of our representatives right here in Colorado. And you can reach out to each and every one of them, make your voice known and do so respectfully. And more importantly, pray, seek the Lord over what is taking place all around us. We need to be diligent in this. We must be change agents in our spheres of influence. I hope you've been encouraged today. I want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. If you're looking for a church to get involved with, we would love for you to come worship with us at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you.